Well, thanks for joining us again. We're going to continue the discussion looking at some of the periodization issues and how we go about organizing our exercise in our diet to encourage continuous adaptations and continuous improvements, and then hopefully maintain the improvements that we've made in our body composition and in our overall health. We're going to go ahead and look at some of the implications of the studies that I've been referencing in the previous editions of the podcast, where we talked about the importance of periodization in diet and exercise looking particularly at the implications of the uh, 2018 study where we took the yo-yo dieters through a progressive and periodized exercise regimen that allowed them to no longer be yo-yoers. And what we'll do is we'll take a look at what the study showed and what the implications of the study happens to be and how we can go about organizing the exercise and organizing the diet in such a way that we're able to meet what we want in terms of our overall changes in health and overall changes in performance. Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard or believed to be true about how the human body works and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy. And so one of the things that we tend to look at when we look at the need for improvements in body composition and improvements in overall health as relates to diet and exercise is the need to have some sort of excessive caloric expenditure. And we've talked about this a number of times where the use of the caloric expenditure and the focus on caloric expenditure within the diet and within the exercise regimen actually sets up a negative mindset for most individuals and can actually lead to psychological harm for the person because what it does is it sets up false equivalency in terms of what am I eating versus what am I needing versus what am I expending. And this is where when we start looking at the use of diet within the programs. Instead of looking at the diet in terms of program, in terms of caloric expenditure and caloric intake, the calorie in, calorie out, the caloric balance, we have to look at it in terms of the nutrient balance issues. And one of the things that I've done in the podcast descriptor is put in a couple of links for you to the actual trackers that we used in the study where you can actually look at in terms of an Excel spreadsheet that is available for you to download and utilize is a preset equation for looking at what is the calorie in, calorie out, the caloric balance issue, which is what most people think about when they think about the need to establish exercise for the, the weight management and the body composition changes. But the better value that you need to look at in terms of that tracker is going to be within that uh, nutrient balance factor. And what I've done is I've given you upper and lower limits within that. And the upper and lower limits are based off of the nutrient balance from the metabolism papers that are linked within the descriptors. One of the things that we did with the periodized program from 2015 to 2017, publication 2018, was we went off of what was shown in the meta-analytical study that basically said that it's not about caloric deficit, it's not about 
how effective am I reducing my calories within the days, within the weeks, within the months. It's really about making sure that I'm not too negative, not too positive. And so what we did is we set up a, a line of thought where, okay, we'll keep you between five and 10% negative. So we will be in what is usually referred to as a caloric deficit. And we use the, the Harris-Benedict equation to determine that, that balance point. And every couple of weeks, we would reweigh the individuals in terms of determining their body mass. And we would, wouldn't have to worry much about height changes because everybody was an adult at that point in time and was not going through growth spurts. But we would modify their caloric balance point based off of any changes in body mass. And we would always keep it at 90 to 95% of what their estimated value for energy need in the day was there. And we would use the activity conversion factor of about 1.6, which would be the moderately high active because we were doing physical activity and exercise pretty much every day of the week with some rest days within there that would not add to a whole lot of the energy needs for the individual. And so that's how we went about setting up the changes in our fuel use, fuel availability, our diet, our, in our nutrition. And so you can go ahead and you can take that Excel sheet and put your own information into it and go ahead and see what values you would get for yourself. The other thing that we did is we would constantly be testing their strength and constantly be testing their aerobic capacity at the end of each of the periods. And we'll talk a little about that when we get to how we went about periodizing the exercise. We would use an estimated value for the strength using the uh, Mayhew equation. Once again, you can see that equation in the uh, Excel sheet that you have access to. And we would use the, the Cooper 12-minute uh, run test to look at their aerobic fitness. And we use that as a means to uh, test aerobic fitness because we didn't want to put them on a metabolic cart because we want them to be able to track for themselves. And that's kind of important when we look at periodizing our trainings. We want to make sure that we're having constant states of improvement. And so all of the tests that we did in terms of the fitness tests, in terms of the strength, in terms of the aerobic capacity, the aerobic endurance, is that we set it up in such a way that every about four to six weeks, we'd be reassessing their aerobic capacity, reassessing their strength based at the end of each of the training periods. And the end of each training period would then be followed by a uh, test and a rest period. And then we'd pick up with the next block of training. And what we're able to do is we're able to go about tracking changes in performance. And that's the big thing that takes us into the periodized program versus the progressive overload programs, where we know where we should be within each of the intensities based off of our training goals. So if our training goal happened to be hypertrophy, we would go about doing training intensities uh, at that 75 to 80% using uh, the 20 to 30 reps using two to three sets, eight to 10 reps with about a minute and a half rest in between each set. Where if we were having the training goal of increase of strength, we'd be lifting at 95 to 100% of their max strength, increasing our, our sets, but decreasing our total training volume. So we do like three to five sets at most five reps, 
getting about three minutes, two to three minutes of rest in between each set. Where if we're looking at trying to increase our power, we would be doing training intervals. Uh, once again, we'd be using that same kind of uh, low rep count, high set count, but we'd be doing it at a lower training intensity. So if we're trying to do power adaptations, we'd be going about at like between 40 and 60% of maximum strength, utilizing around five to six sets, five to six reps for each set, giving about two minutes of rest in between each of the sets. And when we're looking at the way in which we go about doing the different types of lifting intensities within there, it's about not just the strength that you're trying to encourage, the resistance that you're trying to move against, but also the speed at which you're moving against it. And so when we're looking at trying to increase our power output, we would do it in such a way that we would be at a lower level of load, but we'd be trying to encourage as fast a movement as possible. So as to encourage the power response. And this is where we have some, some terminologies that get thrown around. And once again, this is where a lot of you have heard me talk about words have meanings. And this is where we have to remember that we're using correct words in here. And so when we're talking about strength, we're talking about the resistance to tearing. And so muscles produce strength. They're going to produce a resistance to tear, a resistance to the stretch that gets put about from the load that's being placed on them. Force is the mass times acceleration in terms of the physics of what's going on. And then power is going to be how quickly I'm able to do my work. And work is going to be how far can I move the weights that I'm needing to move. The last bit of, of training adaptations that, that came into play when we looked at how we went about setting up the, the training is how do we go about setting up training to increase aerobic fitness using resistance exercise? Because one of the things that comes into play when we start looking at trying to periodize exercise so that it becomes self-selected, self-motivated you want to make sure that the exercise selection is going to be most appropriate for the individual that's trying to do the exercise. And so a lot of people who are want, who have an aversion to exercise typically have an aversion to exercise towards the endurance style of exercise, particularly for individuals who have any type of weight issue. And so what we know is that we can increase local, lo, local muscle endurance utilizing a lower intensity, very similar to what we saw with the power, but utilizing higher rep counts within the sets with shorter rest intervals. And so what we did is we set up the uh, endurance training methodology within the training routine where if we're trying to increase in our endurance, we would do it with utilizing a 40 to 60% of maximum intensity, doing maybe one to two sets at like 20 or so reps, 
with very short rest intervals. And so all of the resistance exercising that we did was done in a way so as to encourage muscle strength, encourage muscle growth, and encourage muscle endurance. But we would also see changes in metabolism and metabolic functions. We would also see changes in aerobic fitness for the individual, even though we were focusing on resistance exercise within there. When we started looking at, okay, how can we set up the endurance side of the training? Once again, we want to make sure that we're setting it up in such a way that it can be self-monitored. And this is where, yeah, we can go ahead and use the fitness trackers. And I've talked about the fitness trackers and some of the issues that lay in with the fitness that come about with reliance on fitness trackers and some of the issues that are inherent to utilizing fitness trackers. But one of the things that's not uh, inherently off is the use of perceived exertion. That is, how subjectively hard am I working? And there's some pretty good correlations that come into play as it relates to the, the scaling and the scale we use. It's what's referred to as the Borg scale. And what the Borg scale is, is it's basically going to roughly correlate to percent of heart rate intensity. And so what we do is we would kind of teach the individuals what is an easy intensity. Well, on the Borg scale, it would be like a, a between a four and a six. What is a moderate intensity? Well, it would be between like a six and an eight. And what's a hard intensity? Anything above nine or anything above eight. And we would go ahead and we would set up the training program in such a way that we would be utilizing various types of training modalities and training intensities over the days, over the weeks, over the months as we did this uh, training study. And this training study was actually run for two years. And once again, these were people who would stop doing their exercising after a few weeks because they would stop seeing changes. And we saw continuous and progressive changes with the individuals. We did make some progressive training increases. The progressive training increases were not done on a daily and weekly basis. They were done usually mid-training, where we would increase somewhere between 2 and 5%, depending upon the exercise that was being done. depending upon what was the goal within the training session and what was the goal within the training period. The one thing we always were constantly looking at reassessing was the endurance intensity based off of their individual's aerobic capacity. Because one of the things that happens that we have to be very cognizant of is the fact that endurance adaptations, endurance training changes. And so we, and so one of the things that we did within our periodization is that we were constantly uh, checking on aerobic capacity and aerobic endurance. And that's because endurance changes tend to be quickly acquired and quickly lost. It's one of the things we have to be very careful of when we start looking at extended periods of rest within the training protocol 
rest within the training protocol, particularly when we start looking at resistance exercise is okay. We can have extended rest and not lose a lot of the strength changes, a lot of the power changes that we see within the muscles. However, if we have extended rest within the training programs, a lot of the endurance adaptations can get lost. It usually, the general idea here is that endurance changes will occur within the first couple of weeks. will plateau. And then if we do not have any type of changing within the endurance style of exercise or stress of exercise, we start to have plateauing. And if we take time off from doing any type of endurance or doing any type of physical activity or exercise, we can very easily lose those endurance adaptations. It's one of the things we have to be very cognizant of if we're healthcare professionals and we want to put anybody anybody on bed rest or extended periods of rest. If they happen to have any type of other health issues, other non-communicable disease issues, non-communicable disease issues, such as metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease. Because the extended periods of rest can be detrimental to their overall endurance and can be detrimental to their overall health and performance. And so within our progressive style of progression and within our periodized style of progression, so we did is we kind of mix and matched the way in which we went about doing our periodization where we had quasi-undulating, quasi-linear a combination of progressive overload with the periodized method, we wanted to make sure we had two things. Within each of the training periods, we wanted to make sure that we had about six training sessions per week, which means that we had over a seven-day week period. We had six training sessions and one active rest day. And that was usually where we would want to encourage having at least three days of resistance exercise and at least two days of endurance exercise where that was the principal focus of the training. And what we did is we then went about within the calendar year, blocking off the calendar based off of specific training adaptations that we were encouraging to be acquired over the training and over the year. And what we're able to, to see is that we're able to see a quick adaptation in overall strength, a quick adaptation in overall endurance, a quick adaptation of local muscle endurance. And even those adaptations started to taper off we still saw progressive changes throughout the two-year window of time. The amount of change was greatest at the beginning of the training, but there were still changes hap happening. There's still changes taking place. And most of that can be attributed to the fact that we were not in a constant progressive overload. We were not in a consistent style of exercise. What we were able to do is we were able to make sure that we did not get stagnation within the training. 
by ensuring that we had our blocked timelines, focusing on specific goals for training. And by having blocked times focusing on specific goals of training, we were able to have the continuous progression of adaptations taking place. Now, some of you are listening saying, well, my primary goal is not to have increased strength and increased endurance, but to actually lose weight. And here's the thing. Everybody lost weight in this program, even though the principal goal here was not losing weight. In fact, we didn't have the goal of weight loss available to them in terms of uh, goal selection. We would use body mass and we would track body mass and we would look at body composition and track body composition changes over the two-year window of time that they were doing their training. And everybody lost body mass on average, about 35% over the two-year window of time. Of that, we saw a drastic change in the total amount of fat mass that they had. We saw losses of total mass averaging, uh, like I said, around 30 to 35% of total body mass. The total fat mass, like I said, was around 35% total loss but we saw a gain of about 8% of fat-free mass. And so we saw a total change in there in the mid 20% of total body mass. And like I was saying, about 35% on average, 30, 35% on average loss of fat mass. While we saw a gain of about 10% of fat-free mass. And so we were seeing changes in the 20 to 40 kilogram range of fat mass, lost fat mass, and a gain of between four and six kilograms of fat-free mass. over the two-year window of time. And once again, we saw pretty drastic changes very early, particularly in that, that fat mass loss. Whereas the gain in the fat-free mass took a little bit of time, but we saw that eventual rise in fat-free mass. Along with those changes, we saw drastic changes in overall cardiorespiratory fitness, a decrease in resting heart rate, a decrease in submaximal heart rates, and an increase in aerobic capacity and aerobic fitness. And once again, this is all done based off of how we went about blocking out our scheduling. And so how do we go about blocking out our scheduling? Well, this goes into the periods and what we looked at in terms of what we would do in 
weeks one through eight, weeks nine through 20, so on and so forth. And so one of the things that we started looking at is that if we go about making our changes in our goals, and you can see this with the link on the organization, the, the planning, where we basically broke up our progression into what we call 13 cycles. And each cycle had the meso, the macro, and the micro goal orientations in there. For everybody that we were doing this, this goes to those of you who are yo-yoers or those of you who have problems following long-term or finding a program that you want to follow. If I set up my long-term goal to be a consistent exerciser, to be to follow consistent diet, to select a diet regimen, to select an exercise program that I find appeasing. If that's my long-term goal, then what I want to do is I want to set up my, my first of my small goals, my first of my micro goals, being able to follow that for one week. And then my mid goal would be being able to follow that for one month. And then I simply will reassess those goals at the end of the one week and the end of the one month. And so we knew that we had yo-yoers to start with. And so when we set up the program here, we did this, okay, what do we want to try to do in the long term? What was the one thing that everybody wanted to do? And the one thing that everybody wanted to do is that they wanted to be able to participate in their child's fundraising 5K run. And they wanted to do it where they were able to run the 5K and not have to walk it because they got tired and then not have to stop in the walk because they got tired during the walk. And so we knew that there would happen once a year. And so we set up where our goal was in the first couple of sessions, the first couple of cycles within there was to, okay, what was the 5k time and how can we go about reducing that 5k time, complete the distance in shorter periods of time. That would be the goal. Well, the first thing we have to be able to do is we have to be strong enough to propel our bodies for that. And then we have to have enough endurance within the body to continuously do it. And so we set up our lifting and our endurance activities in such a way so as to encourage consistent activity but we also set it up in such a way that the program parameters, the way in which we were setting up the sets and the reps, the training volume, the training intensity, and the rest intervals would encourage growth and strength adaptations followed by increases of aerobic fitness. And so if we look at the, the cycling, the cycle one goal that we had, the goal at the end of the first 12 weeks of training, because we broke this up into the eight to 12 weeks windows of time 
our shortest window of time was, I think, about six weeks. The first cycle was we're going to increase our strength, increase our muscle size, increase our, our hypertrophy, our, our muscles, our hypertrophy, our bones, so that we're strong enough to withstand the activities that we need to do. But that didn't mean that we ignored the endurance capacity issues. And this is where we incorporated various aspects of other training that has been shown to be quite effective for improving aerobic fitness, improving endurance in very short windows of time. Because once again, these are not professional athletes. These are not individuals who had hours to spend at the gym. And I've had this conversation with a number of students of mine and a number of colleagues of mine. If you're in the gym for more than an hour and a half, including changing, showering, and getting out, there's something wrong with what you're doing. Because it shouldn't be an over a two-hour window of time in the gym, unless you're a professional athlete. And I'm tossing the bodybuilders into that professional athlete realm. Or if you're someone that has to have a, a set body image that involves you having to do extensive amounts of exercise. For most of us, we don't have to spend more than an hour working out per day in order to obtain the goals we want to obtain. And so all of the exercising that we we set up within the within the program and that was followed by the personal trainers who were who were working with the individuals in the study is that we set it up so that they would basically be able to get the workout in in between 45 minutes and an hour. It, yes, it takes a little bit longer when we first start the exercise, but as we progress through the exercise, we end up spending a little bit less time with the exercise, and that's fine. That's one of the things that happens within the exercise regimen is we start realizing, oh, I, I don't have to... It, I learn how to do the exercise and I become more efficient and more effective in doing my exercising. But what we did is we, is we broke it up. We incorporated active rest days within there. And so when we first started lifting, we first started working out, we first started exercising, first started changing the diets. We incorporated more rest intervals within the week than we had later on. And that's simply because the body is just getting used to stuff. And what we don't want to do is we don't want to put the body into an overtraining situation, overstress situation very early because that's just going to discourage the use of the exercise. And so what we're going to look at is we're going to look at, okay, so we're going to progress. And so the first thing I want to do is I want to make sure that I am developing a good strength base. And then the next thing that we looked at is, okay, we're going to increase our aerobic fitness so that we're able to decrease the time on course for completing the, the 5K. And then the next one we wanted to do in here is, okay, let's go into a maintenance phase. And so what we kind of did is we kind of broke up the second big cycle, the second big block of 12 weeks into two distinct 12-week windows. 
or two, two distinct six week windows in terms of the 12 weeks where what we did is we basically said, okay, we're going to try to increase our aerobic fitness. And then we're going to try to maintain that increase. And we're going to try to maintain the strength that we increased and maintain the muscle growth that we got at the very beginning. Because when we start to set up the exercise regimens, we start to set up the way in which we organize our training within each training session, we're going to be able to focus on specific, specific physiological responses that we want. And that's all about how we organize that in terms of the multi-joint, multi-planar exercises versus the single-joint, single-planar exercises. If I want to encourage maximum amount of growth in the muscles, what I want to do is I want to make sure that I'm going to encourage the greatest amount of anabolic response following the exercise. And this is where on days where I am lifting and on the day following the lift, if, a, if the goal is to increase the size of the muscle, increase the size of the bones in terms of how robust the tissue happens to be, how strong the tissue happens to be, what I want is I want to minimize the endurance activities surrounding the lifting. And I want to utilize as many large lifting motions as possible. And so if I want to get maximal growth, I want to use multi-joint, multi-planar exercises. So I want to have multiple parts of the body moving within the exercise at the training intensity and within the training volume, it's going to maximize my hypertrophication. But what I don't want to do is I don't want to do that and then immediately follow it up with a prolonged endurance activity. And this is where we can go about utilizing the endurance capacities that we're going to be able to grow within the resistance exercise combined with short burst endurance activities, what is usually referred to as interval training. And it's not really what everybody thinks about in terms of like the high intensity intervals. It's just simply just doing variable level or variable intensity endurance as my endurance training for that day and for the day that follows. And then the other thing we want to start doing is, is if we're focusing on growth of the muscles, growth of the, growth of the bones, getting the th muscles stronger, getting the bones stronger, getting the tendons stronger, is that what I want to do is I want to make sure that I have appropriate levels of recovery before I come back and re-stress. And this is where we have to remember is that it's going to take around 48 to 72 hours, two to three days before I'm able to get back and re-stress those tissues to encourage continuous growth. And this is where, if we look at the bodybuilding programs, we get that split body routine. But if I'm trying to maximize my, ana my anabolic responses, but I'm also trying to encourage in changes in endurance, I don't necessarily want to follow a bodybuilding split routine However, what I can do is I can go ahead and follow a split body routine where I would do uh, pressing exercises followed by pulling exercises, followed by a rest or an endurance day, or I would do an upper body pressing followed by a leg or a lower body day followed by an upper body pulling, followed by an endurance day followed by 
the upper body pressing and do it in terms of a rolling pattern of exercise that way. And so that's kind of what we did within our training regimens. But we also incorporated things such as circuit training. And the circuit training that we did was not the typical thing that people think about when they think about circuit training. This is more of a endurance circuit training, utilizing resistance exercise as the principal means to encourage endurance change, an increase of aerobic fitness or increase of aerobic capacity. Now, after we got our baseline strength, our baseline growth set up and are increasing in those values, the next thing we wanted to do is we wanted to start to say, okay, let's, for the next big block, once again, we broke that block up into two smaller blocks. Let's go ahead and let's increase our focus on our increase of power. That is how quickly can I execute the movements that I need to move. And then let's increase our total strength. And so once again, we're going to be taxing the muscles at different levels within this big block in two smaller blocks where for six weeks we focus on the power training volumes and training intensities followed by our strength training volumes and training intensities. And then we broke it up again and we started to do some repeats within our cycling where we now have a, a bigger cycle looking at, okay, we're improving our strength. We're improving our power. We've started growing the muscles. Okay, so now let's back up a little bit and let's go ahead and let's improve our aerobic fitness. Because once again, I can back up the stress on the muscle triggering growth, triggering power, triggering strength, and still keep those gains, but change the focus towards let's improve aerobic fitness, let's improve endurance, because changes in those factors, changes in those values in terms of the endurance values that are there are more quickly lost than the changes that we would see in the strength or in the power or in that purchification, the, the size of the muscle that's there. And if we actually look at some of the studies that have been uh, published that um, focused on protein and protein metabolism and muscle growth, if during this endurance phase, if I increase my protein towards my upper limits, I can actually encourage muscle growth to take place, even though my focus happens to be on endurance and on increases of aerobic fitness and aerobic capacity. And this goes into needing to periodize the diet 
to be appropriate to the periodization that we see with the exercise. Everybody looks at, okay, if I'm focusing on growing the muscles, if my principal mode of exercise is resistance training, where um, in my hypertrophication zone, in my growth zone, I need to make sure that I have extra, 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 extra protein. And that's not necessarily the case. One of the things that we have to remember is that when we're trying to grow muscles, yes, we do need to be in a positive protein balance, do need to be in a positive nitrogen balance. But during the exercise, we're going to be predominantly utilizing carbohydrates that we happen to have available to us. And if I am starving my body of carbohydrates, if I'm following the popular keto diets, I'm going to have to get carbohydrates from somewhere. And what the body's going to do is it's going to start to metabolize the proteins and metabolize the amino acids that built the proteins to give me the carbohydrates that I need so that I'm able to do the metabolism with the carbohydrates available to me. I'm not automatically going to go and start to utilize the lipids, even though if I am in specific physiological parameters, going to be maximizing my lipid metabolism, I'm still going to be utilizing carbohydrates. I'm still going to be utilizing amino acids. I'm still going to be utilizing all of the other substances that we utilize for energetic purposes. And so if I am weightlifting in order to build muscles, do I have to have additional protein in my diet? Yes. But there's two aspects of that that I have to be cognizant of. I don't need that additional protein immediately after the exercise. Because once again, the, the repair and the growth is going to take place over a 24, 40-hour window of time. But what I do need to do is I do need to control the inflammatory hormones, the inflammatory uh, endocrines that are going to trigger additional protein breakdown. One of the ways that I can control those is by providing them the fuel sources that they need. And the fuel sources that most of those cells are going to need is going to be sugars. It's going to be carbohydrates. And so if I can give them the carbohydrates, if I can give the omega-3s and the omega-6s that are going to be necessary for controlling the hormone productions, then I'm going to control the amount of inflammation that's taking place. And once again, we talked about this in the NSAID uh, talk and also in the uh, substack. By organizing the diet in such a way that when I am doing my heavy lifting, during the exercise and immediately following the exercise, if I happen to have carbohydrates available to me, I'm going to be good in terms of excessive protein breakdown. I do need to have some slight increase in my protein intake. Once again, I don't have to go exorbitant. I don't have to go to where I am eating 7,000 grams. Once again, I'm exaggerating that number. I don't have to eat exorbitant amounts of protein in order to encourage muscle growth. But I do have to be at the upper limits of my ranges. But more importantly, I have to make sure that my carbohydrates are at an appropriate level so as to not encourage additional protein breakdown to meet my energy needs 
because I have the fuel sources, the carbohydrates that are available so that I can go about using the amino acids and using the proteins that are available to me to start to rebuild the muscles. There's a caveat on that. And the caveat comes when I am lifting in an endurance focus, or if I am having my goal be increase of aerobic fitness through use of endurance activity. Endurance activity will increase the breakdown of proteins. It increases the breakdown of proteins by increasing uh, hormone circulations, in particular cortisol circulations, where I need to make sure that after exercise, I give myself some additional protein to help control the amount of cortisol that's in circulation, to help control the amount of protein breakdown that, that is occurring, and to offset the amount of protein breakdown that occurred during the endurance activity. That does not happen during resistance exercise, particularly if my resistance exercise is planned out, scheduled out with the extended rest intervals with short sets and multiple sets. So doing five to six to eight repetitions, three to four to five sets, two to three minutes of rest in between. I don't, I am not going to be using a whole bunch of protein within the exercise. Will I be breaking down a lot of muscle tissue during the, during that time? Yes. Will I have to repair that muscle tissue? Yes. And I'm going to need the additional proteins, the additional amino acids during the recovery phase. You don't need to be consistently consuming the proteins during exercise, particularly if my exercise happens to be resistance exercise. Do I need to consume some carbohydrates during resistance exercise? Yes. Do I need to consume carbohydrates during endurance exercise? Yes. But the other thing that I need to make sure I'm, that I am consuming during endurance exercise or immediately following exercise of endurance style is additional protein to offset the protein that's been utilized for energetic purposes during the exercise session. And so this is where we talk about the periodization of the diet to correspond with the periodization of the exercise. And we wanna make sure that our diet is corresponding with what is my goal coming out from my exercise. The goals that we set within the periodization program is going to establish both the exercise that I'm doing plus the diet that's going to support. And so looking at, once again, looking at the study, as we progressed, we got past the 5K and we'd said, okay, everybody was able to do the 5K run. Everybody was able to complete the 5K run without having to walk and without having to stop. Okay, so what's the next goal that we're gonna set for ourselves? And the next endurance goal that they set for themselves was because there was a group of individuals that wanted to go and try the 10K run at one of the running events let's go ahead as a group and let's set up a goal of being able to complete the 10K. Where some of them had the goal of not just 
being able to complete the 10K, but complete the 10K and complete it in under an hour without having to walk. Whereas others within the group just wanted to be able to complete the 10K. And so what we did is we then changed our endurance training mechanisms to be slightly extended in terms of the duration of endurance activity or increase the intensity of the endurance activity where we were working at higher levels of perceived exertion and or for extended periods of time and for extended distances because we had to go from being able to cover just over three miles to being to covering about six and a half miles. That's the difference between the 5K and the 10K. And so once again, we set up the training in such a way so that we're going to go about increasing our endurance. As we start increasing our endurance, we then say, okay, we got to make sure that we're strong enough and powerful enough in order to complete the run. And so we then went back and we changed, okay, what is our strength going to be? What is our power going to be? All in the meso cycling to reach the macro cycling goal of completing that 10K. And so we were able to go about doing this modification, doing this change in training in such a way that we were able to have continuous progressive responses and the continuous progressive responses allowed us to improve. And the improvement, even though we did see reductions in the percentage of improvement, we still saw a constant positive improvement. We saw over the life of the study, we saw increases of 80 to 100% improvement in strengths where people where the individuals were almost doing twice what they did when they first started in terms of their strength we were seeing 200 300 400 plus percent changes in their lo local muscle endurance over the lifespan of the study. And all of this was based off the fact that we were developing the program based on performance gains and not on weight loss. And part of that is because we got rid of that negative encouragement that comes about from looking at the scale and seeing a gain in weight without understanding where that weight gain came from. We focused on performance. We focused on health aspects. Did we see weight loss over the two-year window of time? Yes. But that wasn't the goal. The goal was to change performance. Focusing on performance without the impetus for weight loss allowed us to provide the means to get rid of yo-yoing. It's that yo-yoing that we see with individuals who are over fat, people who are 
tend to be highly sedentary that will start something, stop something, start something, stop something. And that's because the goals that they set for themselves are not as effective as the goals should be. The rationale that we use for our periodization is based off of the effectiveness that we know that comes about from the eight to 12 weeks in terms of when do we see physiological changes based off of the stresses and when do we stop seeing those changes. And so what we did is we looked at utilizing the performance gains and the performance goals as the principal means for the training design over the long term, understanding that we would not see continuous changes if we did not break up the training into the eight to 12 weeks. Understanding that highest level of effectiveness for all body measurements occur at around that 12 to 24 week window of time and taper there beyond that. We knew when do we when when would we expect to see differences of effectiveness? And the differences of effectiveness allowed us to plan out accordingly for when to start to change up within the long term, the macro of the training cycle. When do we want to make changes? We also understood and we also programmed in. The fact that resistance exercise is a more effective means of exercise than endurance exercise as it relates to changes in both body mass, body composition, and more importantly, health. We limited the use of the scale very early on. And for those of you that are looking at utilizing exercise as a means to control body mass changes, limiting the use of the scale is important early on in any of the training that you're doing, focusing on changes in overall fitness and overall performance as the foundation for your long-term exercising. What we saw is that there was continuous improvement and the continuous improvement reduced the stagnations that we would normally see. And the continuous improvement was seen particularly when we started to allow for self-selection within the training where they were allowed to choose which of the lifting programs that they wanted to do in the periodized fashion. We allowed them to self-select training intensities and training volumes to meet their subjective level of perceived exertion for the day. We started noticing that the timing of what we saw in terms of the modifications related to the exercise was not due to any single type of exercise but was based off of the overall changes that we saw. And so we want to do is when we start to periodize out correctly, we want to make sure that we're encouraging that long-term goal, where even though we might be at a plateau at this point in time, if we start to slightly modify training intensities, take a day that should be a heavy day and turn it into an active rest day, we can go ahead and minimize the plateau by giving that, uh, the extra rest 
within the training. It reduced any type of overtraining. We did not have any overtraining issues come about over the two-year window of time of training. We saw continuous improvements in all physiological measures. We saw continuous changes in the long-term to the loads that they used in their resistance exercise. We saw continuous improvement in the long-term to the level of intensity of endurance activity that they were doing. And so when we start to set up the periodizations within our exercise regimens, what the study did, what the study shows, and what uh, unfortunately not very many other studies have looked at this, what we showed in this study is that we can effectively periodize exercise. And exercise, when periodized, is a very effective means to encourage long-term exercising behaviors in individuals who were non-long-term exercisers, people who were yo-yoers, people who fell into the cyclic trap of weight loss, weight gain, weight loss, weight gain. Because what the periodized exercise does is it breaks up the monotony of the exercise and it gives a more realistic timeline to the individual for obtaining goals and the use of a six to 12 week cycling within the exercise regimen within the periodizations seems to be effective. And it corresponds with what has been seen with other types of cycles for the athletes. And we'll talk about athletes in a different uh, podcast here. But for the everyday individual who is looking at utilizing exercise as a means to control body mass or as a means to improve overall health, periodization appears to be a very effective means for doing this especially when the periods are broken up in such a way as to focus on specific goals within each of the micro, the meso, and the macroing of the calendar. For those that are looking at this in terms of, in terms of reduction of body mass, it's not about caloric restriction. In fact, limiting how much caloric restriction you have is important. Focusing on what is my nutrient load, what is my nutrient balance is more appropriate than looking at what is my caloric restriction. As this gives both the physiological as well as the psychological encouragement for continuing on the diet that has been selected. Within that diet selection, we want to make sure that we're periodizing the diet to match the periodization that is taking place within the exercise. So that we're able to encourage improvements in overall health. 
in the long term. And that's what we want to make sure that we're doing is everything is encouraged towards the long term. Well, thanks for listening. Hopefully you got a little bit out of how we went about doing the periodizations for individuals who are over fat and got a little insight into how you might be able to go about periodizing for yourself. Please feel free to utilize the resources that are available to you in the links in the description for the podcast. If you wish to contact us in terms of how to go about setting up for yourself, please feel, feel free to reach out to us. We're more than happy to discuss this in further detail with you. Please make sure that if you haven't, like and subscribe and encourage others to do so as well.